This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Welcome everybody to the second seminar on Glenn Lowry's Tanner Lectures this year. I want to say this has been, I think, an incredible event so far. Um, important topic, interdisciplinary, involved with human values in a central way, and I've just been thrilled um, to be a part of it and to be a part of the discussion. So I just want to re-emphasize um, just how wonderful an event this has been. Uh, but the event's not over, and it continues today with two um, additional commentators on the Tanner Lectures. Um, today's commentators will be Malik Akam from the uh, University of California, Berkeley, in the Sociology Department, and Tommy Shelby from the Philosophy Department and African American Studies at Harvard University. Um, each of them will speak for about 20 minutes. Tommy will go first. And Glenn then, at the end of his comments, will have a chance to respond. And then we'll open it up for discussion with all of us. So, Thanks so much, Deborah. So first, thank my host for uh, inviting me to be the commentator on Glenn Lowry's Tanner Lectures and for taking such good care of me and my wife, Jessie, while we've been here. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed my, my visit and uh, the opportunities to exchange ideas, to see friends. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite wonderful. I'd also like to thank Professor Lowry for providing us all with such, stimulating, uh, such a stimulating set of reflections on, the, on a, obviously quite urgent urgent set of, set of issues, the thoughtfulness, the rigor, the clarity, as well as the passion he brings to these questions as to be admired and emulated. As many have remarked, I'm especially pleased to see Lowry's move from the neocon right toward the left. One can't help but be glad to have such a powerful voice on the progressive side. And if nothing else, it is encouraging to see that black neoconservatism is not an untreatable condition. <laughs> yes. yeah. that, that reflection, critical reflection, a love for justice, and indeed a love for one's people, can lead one to change one's mind about quite fundamental political questions. That said, my remarks this morning uh, I want to urge Professor Lauer to move even further to the left. I don't feel that this is presumptuous on my part uh, or that it's asking too much, for I think I can detect ambivalence in Lowry himself. He seems torn about whether a more radical stance than he has taken is warranted by his own analysis. Indeed, I think I can show that a more strongly egalitarian a more militant position is justified without disputing any of his empirical findings, which I find largely persuasive. 
Lowry is animated by questions of justice, and rightly so. Let me therefore begin by distinguishing several distinct questions of justice that arose in his lectures. The first is, are the prisons and jails in the United States often cruel and inhumane? His answer is yes. And this would seem to demand at least prison reform. Although I think it also raises the issue of whether inmates' constitutional rights are being violated, given the Constitution's Eighth Amendment prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment, but I will leave that aside. The second question is, do the punishments meted out frequently fail to fit the crimes committed by the urban poor? Given the long sentences for juvenile and nonviolent offenders, the stiff penalties for minor parole violations, and the disfranchisement of felons who have paid their debt to society? The answer here, again, is yes. This suggests the need for reform in the penal code, and perhaps giving judges more discretion in sentencing. A third question is this. Does mass incarceration have a disproportionate negative impact on a historically disadvantaged racial group, African Americans? Clearly, Lowry thinks the answer is yes. And of course, who can dispute that conclusion? And he builds his argument largely around that proposition, suggesting that this fact in itself should lead us to reconsider our current punishment practices. He makes the case, a convincing one, I believe, that given our long history of racial injustice, a criminal justice system that creates a stigmatized racial caste makes it reasonable to doubt whether all are being treated with equal respect and concern in our supposedly liberal democratic society. A fourth and final question is this. Are these punishments unjustly applied because they are frequently racially discriminatory? Here his answer is also yes. But he doesn't want to put too much weight on this claim, preferring instead to make his case on the assumption that racial discrimination is no longer a serious problem. I think this is a mistake, and I'll try to explain why in a moment. Now, all these questions fall under what John Rawls calls a non-ideal theory. If ideal theory tells us what principles a fully just society should embody, non-ideal theory tells us how we should respond to or rectify injustice. There are two dimensions of compliance that non-ideal theory deals with. One has to do with how to respond to an individual's failure to comply with what just institutions require of him or her. The other concerns how to respond to or rectify injustices in the social system. So there's the, there's the degree of individual compliance which can be measured by the extent to which persons follow the rules and regulations laid down by the society. And there's a degree of collective compliance, which is measured by the extent to which the main institutions of social life embody principles of justice. Thus, non-ideal theory is relevant to Lowry's discussion of the criminal justice system in at least two distinct ways. One, it concerns how we should respond to the failure of individuals to comply with the law when the offenders are and have long been socially disadvantaged because of racism and poverty. And second, it concerns how one should assess the criminal behavior of the worst off when the social order is itself fundamentally unjust, 
That is, when it falls below any reasonable standard for tolerable injustice. Keeping in mind the four questions of justice I outlined and the aims of non-ideal theory, my first question to Lowry then is how much of his analysis concerns what a just system of punishment in the US should look like? And how much of it has to do with broader questions about the justice of the socio-political order of which the penal system is just a part? All four questions could be approached with a view to penal reform or with a view to substantial structural changes in our society, or of course, with a view to both. He sometimes speaks as if his sole concern is with penal policy, raising larger justice issues only insofar as they bear on criminal justice. For instance, when he invokes Rawls's theory of justice and the conceptual framework of the original position with its justly famous veil of ignorance, he does so not to assess the basic structure of our society, but to ask the question, what principles of punishment would we choose if we thought that we, that is, you and I, could be the criminals in the dark ghetto to which these principles would apply? That's a good question. But it doesn't raise the basic issue of justice that Rawls was concerned to address. Lowry also invokes Rawls's difference principle, which is a rather demanding egalitarian standard. It holds that the only socioeconomic inequalities that are justified are ones that work to the advantage of the worst off in the social scheme. Couldn't be more clear that the vast inequalities in wealth and income in the United States today do not make the worst off, that is, those without marketable talents, as well off as they could be. Yet Lowry does not draw out the implications of this principle for thinking about what legitimate claims for redress that the urban poor possess except to assert that historical racial injustice establishes a general presumption against indifference to contemporary racial inequality, a principle he enunciates. Now, don't misunderstand me. Penal reform is an urgent problem that demands immediate practical responses aimed at amelioration, not necessarily full justice. It would be irresponsible and callous to ignore present suffering because we regard penal reform as too modest to get at the underlying unfairness in our social system. Yet we should also be thinking about these fundamental structural injustices, which will surely require protracted political responses. The fight for equal citizenship for all African Americans has already been a long one, and Lowry rightly emphasizes it's still yet to be won. But the current struggle is not at its heart about mass incarceration. Take Lowry's critique of the ethic of personal responsibility. His criticisms here strike me as, uh, I think, largely on target. There is a failure in the public discourse and even much social scientific discourse to appreciate the complex interaction between individual choices and social structure. Because of the stigma attached to blackness, the social consequences of this complex interaction are too often attributed solely to the values and character of those living in these communities to the neglect of broader structural constraints. <clears throat> Individuals are forced to make choices in an environment that they, did not, that they did not choose. And even from their point of view, the most rational choices under these conditions may not be desirable options. They might prefer, indeed, 
they almost certainly do prefer, uh, to have a different set of options, broader array of opportunities. The question we should be asking, not instead of, but in addition to questions about penal policy, is whether the denizens of the ghetto are entitled, as a matter of justice, to a better set of options. And if so, whose responsibility it is to provide them. In addition, as Larry Forcefully argues, more affluent citizens are quick to believe that the ghetto poor have simply reaped what they have sown, because the well-off don't see these disadvantaged persons as their fellow citizens. Rather, they see them as a stigmatized and threatening black they that must, at any cost, be contained. But I suspect that they, also, that they may also be led to this view because they refuse to acknowledge, to be honest with themselves about two things. One, that the society in which they live is not simply imperfect, but profoundly unjust. And second, that the privileged positions they themselves occupy have been obtained by taking advantage of a grossly unfair opportunity structure. It is a truism of human nature, one emphasized by Max Weber, that the privileged want to believe that they fully merit their advantages and that those who are disadvantaged deserve their misery and hardships. This is perhaps all the more true in a society where the vast majority profess a belief in a benevolent and just God, a deity who surely would not allow people to live such degraded lives if they were not wicked. This human impulse to defend and hold on to one's advantages is another reason why it is absolutely crucial that progressives focus on what basic justice requires and whether the ghetto poor, the truly disadvantaged in our society, are getting what is due them as citizens. Now I think Lowry recognizes the injustices that have led to the problem of mass incarceration. Indeed, his analysis gives us some of the empirical and analytical tools needed to mount a more radical critique, a more fundamental critique of US society. For instance, his argument about the problem of racial stigma suggests not only discrimination in contact, but discrimination in the everyday operation of our most important social institutions. Discrimination in contact, which Lowry sometimes treats as a mere preference for in-group ethno-racial affiliation, is often a matter of hostility towards or bias against the members of other races, and is therefore a vicious form of personal racism. Given the subtle operation of racial stigma, such racism must surely spill over into the administration of basic social institutions, not just into the criminal justice system, but the schools, the labor market, electoral processes, social services, the, the housing market, and other vital institutions for functioning democracy. This is institutional racism, plain and simple. So why not call for more rigorous anti-discriminate for more rigorous anti-discrimination laws and greater investment in their enforcement. Lowry also emphasizes the contemporary relevance of slavery in Jim Crow. He recognizes that many blacks have inherited handicaps due to the legacy of racial injustice. He urges us to be mindful of this tragic history when we make policies dealing with crime. But he stops short of demanding compensatory measures that might correct these handicaps by, say, he uh, investing heavily in the development of human capital in urban communities, 
or helping poor people to buy their own homes in mixed-income neighborhoods. Moreover, given the large percentage of inmates and ex-convicts without a high school diploma or any marketable skills, and the sorry state of public education available to ghetto residents, it is clear that equal educational opportunity does not obtain. Citizens cannot have equal life chances when the quality of education varies so dramatically from neighborhood to neighborhood and when neighborhoods are segregated by race. Given the myriad injustices that the ghetto poor must face, why should racial parity be the goal? If all had equal life prospects regardless of race or class origin, as justice requires, we wouldn't have to worry about racial parity. If racism and class background were not obstacles to living a fulfilling life on terms of mutual respect with one's fellow citizens, group-based distributive measures wouldn't be necessary. Ethno-racial in-group affiliation would inhibit a person's life prospects only where background conditions were unjust. I certainly agree that ethno-racial community networks can sustain and even worsen racial hierarchy and inequality. But rather than focus on individuals' associational preferences, which may not be in themselves morally problematic, why not attack racism and socioeconomic inequality directly? If there were the same percentage of whites as blacks in prisons and abject poverty and miserable low-paying jobs and terrible schools and without adequate health care, should we think that real progress towards social justice had been achieved? I don't think so. This is what you strive for when you think that full, full social justice is out of reach or when you are not really trying to bring about a just society, which of course I'm not suggesting that you think that. Now the political environment may be so inhospitable to progressive change that racial parity may be as much as can realistically be accomplished, at least for the foreseeable future. Moreover, attempting to achieve <clears throat> such parity might be a useful intermediate goal, perhaps a way to weaken the association of blackness with crime and vice. But it's important to make clear, particularly to those languishing in ghettos throughout the United States, that this is pragmatism. Or better, that this is the next step in a long-range struggle for a truly just society. Otherwise, the self-respect of the ghetto poor will be threatened, and they will be right to be suspicious of the motives of their affluent would-be benefactors and allies, given their obvious, their obvious stake in holding on to their privileges and advantages. The point I'm trying to make here is actually rather old. It comes from W.E.B. Du Bois's critique of Booker T. Washington at the turn of the 20th century. Washington downplayed the importance of civil rights and social equality for newly freed persons, suggesting that they were not ready for civic responsibilities and that racial integration was too much to ask. He also urged Southern blacks to, to reconcile with their white oppressors without demanding compensation for past wrongs. He took this accommodationist stance, for which he is famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, because he thought this was the best way to help his people in racist America. Now, Du Bois, too, recognized that full social justice for black folk was not on the horizon. He was not such an idealist that he was blind to white intransigence on the so-called Negro question. Nevertheless, he insisted, 
correctly in my view, that it was crucial to make clear to all that blacks knew what their rights were, that they knew they were being unjustly denied equal citizenship, and that they would not rest until they had all the liberties and opportunities due them as equal members of the republic. This is the only dignified way to live under unjust conditions, or so it seems to me. So what I'm essentially urging here is that Professor Lauer make a clean break with Washington's political outlook on race, that he complete his political transformation. He's already left behind, of course, the reactionary elements of Washington's political philosophy. But I detect remnants of this outlook in his treatment of mass incarceration in these lectures. This takes the form of a, a reticence, I think, a reticence to openly demand full justice for all citizens. As Du Bois often emphasized, we should not sacrifice principle for expediency. And we should keep our just grievances before the public, even as we fight against formidable odds, and even as we try to save as many of our brothers and sisters along that long road to freedom. Now I know I should have definitely spoken before you. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I'd like to thank the various campus units here at Stanford University that have uh, come together to pull uh, together this really superb intellectual event, uh, especially Joan Barry for the terrific uh, work behind the scenes for making everything run very smoothly. Uh, the Center for Comparative Study of Race and Ethnicity for last night's dinner that felt like a block club summer party. Uh, and last but not least, Glenn Lowry, for really for taking up the challenge represented by this lecture and for delivering not only a superb uh, piece of writing, but a superb oral performance that really has me very stimulated. Uh, and I needed the stimulation because I'm severely jet lagged. I arrived from Paris earlier this week. Um, and after I returned to France on Saturday, I would have traveled 10,000 miles to participate uh, in this event. So if I speak about 20 minutes, it's about 500 miles per minute. <laughs> now, I have never done that. And, and I'll, just, uh, I'll start by explaining why. Uh, why, because I think the topic is that important and that grave and that momentous. Um, and then 10, more, more than 10 years ago, I started working on, the, on what I called at the time the shift from the charitable state to the punitive state. And, and, the, and the, the historic uh, invention by the United States of uh, a new government of social insecurity, whereby a restrictive and punitive uh, uh, welfare state turned into a workfare state is mated with a hyperactive and over-expensive over uh, penal state. Now, when I started uh, publishing pieces in 95 and 96 around, there were, there were not many people who were paying attention to that issue. And I sort of have felt I was sort of the foreigner who's hollering in the American forest when the locals are not you know, paying great attention. In 1998, I edited a special issue of the, of, of, of the journal Acts de la Recherche en Sciences Sociales called From Welfare State to Penal State. I'm, it took a lot of hard work to get David Garland and Bruce Western to contribute to that. And, you know, and the impact of the issue was zero. I mean, outside of the French readers, uh, it didn't have much of an impact. And so now finally, we're seeing this issue uh, uh, coming to the fore. Um, and, and to have um, one of America's leading social scientists and one of the rare economists who's still a social scientist um, 
and a leading public intellectual and a leading black intellectual uh, pick up that topic and elevate its visibility and put it on a par with its historic urgency, I think is too rare an event for me to, you know, to, 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 to pass up. And so the conjunction of the prestige of the Tanner Lecture, the institutional visibility of Stanford, the unique mix of analytical rigor and moral fervor that Glenn Lowry brings to the topic was just too uh, precious a conjunction for me to say, no, I, you know, I'll stay in Paris and I'll just uh, listen to the iTunes uh, version later on the web. So it really made it impossible for me not uh, to be at this event um, to talk about the building of this hypertrophic and hyperactive penal state that essentially and inseparably two things. First, it's an instrument to foster the neoliberal revolution of deregulation of the low-wage labor market. And secondly, it's a reaction in the double sense of response and a reactionary response in the sense of backlash to uh, the 1960s, to the civil rights movement and to the ghetto riots of the mid-60s, that is, to the collapse of the institutional apparatus that anchored America racial order um, uh, until uh, then. And so I want to... Um, I wanted to be here, and I hope that this, this is the beginning of a discussion that um, can perhaps prove to be a turning point in the collective mo intellectual mobilization, especially, I think, among African-American uh, intellectuals and beyond, that is needed to put this historic monstrosity front and center on the US uh, public debate. Um, even though you'll see, and I'll explain why, but I'm not overly optimistic about this, and uh, I'm even more pessimistic in the diagnosis of the phenomenon at hand that, that, that Glenn has provided. I share the general drift of, of Glenn Larry's argument, extreme incarceration in the U United States is a civic shame. Its first targets and victims are African Americans. It needs to be moved to the forefront of the US policy debate, and a new inclusive politics must be designed to confront it. Um, but I differ in the specifics of the diagnosis and the nature, the scale, and the impact of the penal state. In the analytics for Glenn Lowry, we can work in a sense from individuals and networks, whereas I put the state at the very center. It's not about individuals, it's not about networks, it's not about communities, it's about the remaking of the state, and a state which practices carceral affirmative action. This is a very you know, peculiar uh, state. And so it leads, the different diagnosis leads to a different set of uh, uh, recommendations when we go from the positive to the normative. Now, I don't have much time, and I've already wasted much <laughs> in introducing the, my, my, my contribution, but I, and, and I will emphasize mostly the differences to push you know, the, the, the debate forward, but I want to stress that my aim is not to undercut uh, Glenn Lowry's arguments. On the contrary, it's to amplify, to make them even more powerful, even more urgent, even if my analysis is perhaps a little more pes pessimistic. Um, or less uh, politically ambitious about the prospects for stopping and eventually turning back penal escalation in, in the United States. Um, in, in a nutshell, as, as, as bad as the story that Glenn has told us over these two lectures, or as tragic as the story that he has told us is, uh, the reality is even worse. The penal state is larger, meaner, more entrenched, more intrusive than he has told us. It has a bigger footprint, a more concentrated and more pernicious effect, on lower class blacks and he has told us, so its impact is greater. And it's not simply processing race. It's not simply, in a sense, taking a legacy of historic racial inequality, but it's changing the very meaning and the very reality of race. In particular, it's changing from blackness as unworthiness to blackness as dangerousness. And I think this changes the whole game of policy prescription uh, that comes behind. And the dilemma, in a nutshell, is not a moral one, but is a squarely a political dilemma. 
Um, it's a political because it, it's about a political transformation in three senses. It's really about the state building a different kind of state, uh, the building of this new state, and it's not about crime. It's really about the creation of a new political regime that I call liberal paternalism. It's liberal at the top. It practices laissez-faire and laissez-passer and deregulation towards the middle and upper class, and particularly towards corporations and flows of capital. So it, it is a laissez-faire and laissez-passer at the top, but it doesn't practice laissez-faire and laissez-passer at the bottom. On the contrary, when it comes to dealing with the consequences of economic deregulation, the social disorders created and the disruptions created at the bottom of the class and ethnic structure, then it becomes intrusive, paternalistic, proactive, um, um, and, 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 and so, it, it, so it, it would seem to be a sort of contradiction. And if, indeed, if you, if you stay within the ideology of neoliberalism, it is a contradiction. It is not a small state, but that's the ideology of neoliberalism. The reality of the neoliberal state is that it is a small state on the social and economic front, but it's a large and proactive state on the penal uh, front. Uh, so, so it's about building a different kind of state. And of course, it's political in the second sense, is that this building is, of course, the result of a transformation of relations of power that have enabled this political transformation uh, to go on. And it's political in the third sense, is that it really engages very deeply the conception of life in common that we have. I mean, it is about the police. It is about what kind of society uh, uh, do we live in. So I've, I've too much to say and not enough time. So I've, I've boiled down my remarks to five arguments. And I'm just going to give them to you now. And then I'll, I'll come back and maybe spend three minutes on each. Unfortunately, that's all I could do. First, misdiagnosis of the phenomenon. This is not about mass incarceration. It's about hyper-incarceration. And in a nutshell, the difference is not a terminological one. It's, it's, it's because the phenomenon is highly selective, and it's triply selective, by class first, by race second, and by place third, that the phenomenon was able to develop. I.e., you would not have a penal state on that scale if indeed it was a mass phenomenon that concerns everybody. So first, uh, first argument. Second. The penal state is not an instrument to manage crime, and has never been an instrument to manage crime. And you know that by going what? To the historical origins and inventions of the prison, which was an instrument to manage the poor beggars and to impose the discipline of work. So if you go back to the historical origins of the prison and you recover that historical mission, you realize the penal state is an instrument to manage dispossessed and dishonored populations. And this is where your uh, focus on stigma is absolutely critical and gives us a hook to really enter into uh, that problem. Third argument, penal expansion is not a response to crime. It's a response to the collapse of the ghetto in the 1960s. The collapse has three roots, economic, political, and civic. But in order to understand why the collapse of the ghetto, uh, in a sense, breeds the expansion of the prison, you have to understand properly what is a ghetto. And you have to avoid what I call the sort of the historical fallacy of ahistorical attribution of everything to slavery. I, this is not a legacy of 400 years ago. This is a legacy of 30 years ago. This is an active process going on. This is not a matter of, you know, in a sense, inherited historical uh, racial inequality, but rather it's about the creation of new racial inequalities out of the collapse of the uh, um, third peculiar institution, and not the first peculiar institution. Fourth argument, um, not only must we connect, reconnect the penal state to the collapsing ghetto, but we must also connect the penal transformation to the social welfare transformation. This is part and parcel of a broader transformation of the American state. And this transformation has two wings, if you wish. There's welfare turning into workfare. And there's you know, rehabilitative corrections turning into punitive, neutralizing, overactive incarceration, warehousing. 
And you cannot understand one without connecting it to the other. And so in a sense, part of the story is missing um, here if we don't uh, bring welfare, workfare, and prison fare together. And lastly, this leads to my fifth argument and, and conclusion, that I believe that moral exhortation is the political cul-de-sac. It leads us nowhere. Uh, and precisely because it is not about, you know, we are not in this together. Precisely, the building of the penal state is not about an institution that concerns everybody. And, and it, otherwise, it would never occur. And so I think we have to have a more uh, a sort of more cold-hearted political approach. Uh, and I think a more limited uh, goal of first minimizing the harm done by the penal state and then finding ways of advocating inclusive, paradoxically universalist policies that will decrease the negative impact of the penal state on uh, the lower class African-American population. So let me now backtrack and give you just a little uh, elaboration on each argument. This is not about mass incarceration. Think about you know, mass education, the mass media, or mass unemployment. Uh, uh, Bruce Western, in his book, uh, Punish Punishment, Imprisonment, and Inequality in America, are, you know, makes the parallel. Mass employment is when unemployment concerns the broad swaths of the population. Mass media, something that everybody has access to. Mass education is something that is homogeneously most citizens have an access to. Well, the penal state is not a mass institution. Never has been, never will be. And it is, first and foremost, a class institution. It's very important uh, uh, to remember that. It is, historically and to this day, the prison system has only ever served the lower class clientele. Today, the profile of jail inmates is the following. Uh, fewer than half held a full-time job at the time of their arraignment. Two-thirds issue from households with annual incomes of less than half of the poverty line, not less than the poverty line, less than half of the poverty line. 13% had some post-secondary education compared to about half the national population. And 60% had grown uh, up without both parents, including 15% grown up in uh, foster homes and orphanages. So that's the first principle of selectivity. The second, of course, is, is racial selectivity. And here, let me have a handout. I have a little, where is it? Um, I want to point to, in a sense, the story of the ethnic makeup of the prison population is even more dramatic than Glenn has told us. Because it's a historical reversal from, oh, it's probably too, too, too small for people at the back. But basically, at the mid-20th mid century point, the prison population was 70% white, 30% others. In 50 years, it has been flip-flopped entirely. Now, how do you get a flip-flopping like that? The discussion, and much of your discussion, of course, and that's because of the bias of criminology, is to look at the crime and punishment and to try to figure out where is the link there. But as I will argue in my second point, the prison has never been about crime. It's always been about managing dispossessed and dishonored populations. And you can see this in the following handout. Is that if you, if you, if you took a photograph of persons arrested for felony arrests in 1970, 1980, 1990, and 2000, that photograph would get whiter as time goes on, i.e. the proportion of African Americans in the criminally active population, contrary to common perception, has decreased over time. The criminal population has become whiter. And at the same time, the prison population has become blacker. And so this, you know, this tells, this is the share of African Americans among individuals arrested by the police 
for four of the most serious violent offenses, murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, 51% in 1973, 43% in 1996. So your share of the violent criminal is becoming whiter. Then why, during the same period, the share of people in prison is becoming blacker? There's one, uh, and, and And part of you know, getting rid of the, of, the, uh, of the crime story is to compute a very simple index. You compute the number of inmates per 1,000 crimes, your whole crime constant. And you see that what has happened in America is between 1975 and 1990, the US has become five times more punitive, holding crime constant. And it has become more punitive and resulted in a blackening of the prison population when the criminal population was becoming whiter. So really, we have a conundrum here that is totally unexplainable so long as we stay within the crime punishment equation. And we have to go beyond that and recover the historic mission of uh, the prison as the institution that manages uh, dispossessed and dishonored population. And this brings us to the point that I wanted to make in the previous handout, which is here, which is on page 12 in your paper. You picked it up well from Bruce Western's table. Now, the most extraordinary result in Bruce Western's analysis is that in, in 30 years, the probability for a black men with less than a high school education to serve time in prison for a felony has been multiplied by four. The probability for a black men with a college education to serve in prison has been diminished by 50%. So what this is telling us is that this is there's not only an extraordinary selectivity by class and by race, but inside of the stigmatized ethnic group, there's an amplified selectivity that targets preferentially and all nearly exclusively lower class black men, and I will add, lower class black men in the urban core. Now, how do you achieve, in a sense, that double selectivity with a just justice system that doesn't write laws saying we will capture only lower class men and only lower class black men? You achieve it by targeting a particular location in space. Why do you target this particular location in space? Because that is the collapse of the ghetto collapse of the ghetto is the condition to which the rise of the penal state is responding. Now let me get to, in a sense, the uh, third argument. Uh, third argument. Penal expansion is a response to the collapse of the ghetto. Why did the ghetto collapse in the 1960s? Now, when I say collapse, it doesn't mean disappear. Um, it collapsed or it imploded onto itself because first, post-industrial uh, economic shift that makes uh, black and skilled labor irrelevant. They no longer have the smokestack industries as the basis of your economy. So that black labor that had been brought into the city is now you know, uh, no longer needed. A political shift because the great black migration to the city is followed by the great white migration to the suburbs that shifts the center of political gravity of the country to the suburbs after 1968. The, the, the Democrats don't need to win the central cities in order to win the presidential election. So this population is economically, is economically marginalized, is politically marginalized. And of course, third is the black mobilization of the civil rights movement coming north and attacking not only Jim Crow in the south, but also the urban ghetto in the north. Now, in order to understand why the collapse of the ghetto begets the rise of the prison system, you must then understand what a ghetto is. And a ghetto is not just a segregated area, it's not a poor area. And, and, or its intersection. Rather, the ghetto is a contraption that allows you to bring a stigmatized population in your midst, to extract economic value out of it, but to ostracize it socially so that you do not mix and you do not suffer the diffusion of the stigma. 
So it's composed of four elements. Stigma, constraints, because nobody chooses to be ghettoized. Spatial confinement of a population that is not to mix. And institutional encasement, such that the group will develop a parallel set of institutions within that reserved territory. Now, consider the following. And hopefully I have that in my handout. This was all prepared last, uh, this morning at 6 a.m., so it's a little helter-skelter. But I'm going to have to uh, read this because I don't think that Larry can, even though you have 20-20 on both eyes, I don't think that you'll be able to see this. But consider what are the four building blocks of a ghetto? Stigma, constraint, spatial confinement, institutional encasement, parallel, institutional parallelism. Consider what makes a prison. Stigma, judicial sanction. Constraint, nobody walks into a prison of their own free will. Spatial confinement, that's the very definition of a prison. It's a separate space in which you have to stay. And what? Institutional encasement and flowering inside of the carceral order. Inmates develop their own specific social order, social relations, cultural values as an adaptation to the deprivation of liberty. That's the thesis of Gresham Sykes in the, 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 the inmate society. Now, the ghetto collapses for these three reasons. It's now become economically redundant, it's politically marginal, and African Americans refuse to be ghettoized anymore. The coming of the civil rights movement when Martin Luther King comes to Chicago in 1966 and starts his march on white neighborhoods, it's not about poverty and it's not about simply desegregation. It's about refusing to be hemmed in into a separate parallel society. Now, the ghetto collapses, but it doesn't disappear, and what remains it's, in a sense, it ceases to have the function of economic extraction because there's no more unskilled labor to be extracted out of the historic ghetto because that labor is no longer needed. But it continues to fulfill its historic function of social ostracization of a population, in a sense, triply stigmatized by blackness, by poverty, and by, and by crime. Or by deviance, you know, social and sexual unworthiness on the welfare front, criminal unworthiness uh, on the... Uh, on the crime front. So if you properly understand what a ghetto is, then you can see why when it implodes, the prison offers itself as a substitute contraption to contain and control a dispossessed and dishonored population considered destitute, deviant, and dangerous with the black skin as an outward indicator of that dangerousness. But here, I would propose that there is two dangers. First is what I call the ahistorical invocation of the historical legacy of slavery. The penal state is not neo-slavery. It's a new institutional configuration formed by the hyper-ghetto on the one side and its extension of the prison system, which are linked now by a threefold relationship of structural similarity or contiguity, functional equivalence, and cultural fusion, is a response to the implosion of the ghetto. We must give each peculiar institution that has served to define, confine, and control African Americans, namely slavery, Jim Crow, the uh, ghetto, and then the historical contraption formed by the hyper-ghetto and the overexpanded prison system, we must give each of these peculiar institutions and its contradictions its due. This is not a tragic history. This is a tragic present. Or it's a history that's 50 years old. It's not uh, uh, 450 years old, 480 years old. Um, and, and, and secondly, I think there's a danger of the ahistorical treatment of race that is attached to that, which is race is not a constant. Race is produced, it is secreted at each historical period uh, by the peculiar institution that takes up the work of defining, confining, and co control African Americans. And in this regard, I would argue, it is no longer unworthiness, but rather dangerousness that defines blackness in contemporary America. 
precisely because the prison system has become the primary race-making institution in this country. Now, fourth element, and then I'll close with the fifth sort of, I'll call that political recommendation rather than moral uh, uh, elaboration. Fourth is, and this is what I argue in my book, Punishing the Poor, the New Government of Social Insecurity, the workfare revolution and penal expansion are the two sides of the same coin, of a political transformation of the US state that have, to, to, that have, that have as stake the redrawing of the perimeter and the mission of the state, particularly in its relation to the lower class. And you cannot understand social welfare policy without taking into account the transformation of penal policy. You cannot understand, conversely, you cannot understand the transformation of penal policy without understanding this restrictive and punitive turn in uh, social welfare policy. In a sense, you have two meshing. You have a meshing externally, the meshing of the hyper-ghetto and the prison system. And internally, inside of the state, you have the meshing of the social welfare wing of the state with the uh, penal wing of the state with a gender division of labor in the work of nomination and domination of derelict and destitute population with workfare handling the women and the children and the prison system handling the men, that is the men or those women, that is the brothers, the sons, the husbands, the fathers of the uh, women and the children on the other side. Now, um, I don't have the time to go into this argument, but basically, in a nutshell, for those of you who are familiar with Piven and Cloward's argument, regulating the poor, in a sense, this is you know, the new regulating the poor. Regulating the poor in Piven and Cloward's argument was that it's a story about the extension and the contraction of social welfare in relationship to the economy. And I argue that now there are two hands to regulate the poor, the, right, the left hand of the state, the social welfare, but also the right hand of the state, uh, the uh, penal institution. And this coupling can be understood by paying attention to the structural, functional, and cultural similarities between welfare and imprisonment as people processing institutions that are targeted on the problem populations and problem territories of the city. And of course, it has been greatly facilitated by the transmission of welfare in a punitive direction and the expansion of the penal system to, tr quote, treat more and more of the target population of welfare. And in, in punishing the poor, I show that, in fact, it's, it's, it is the same population. And, and people who've studied uh, welfare have never paid attention to the fact that the, the welfare recipients, their, their, their men are behind bars. And the people who've studied you know, prison have never paid attention to the fact that the, the men you know, behind bars, their women and their children, are handled on the other side uh, by uh, the workfare state. So, and, and if, you look at, if you look at welfare reform, it's really a restrictive, paternalistic, punitive set of measures that presume, like very much a criminal justice program, it's almost like a work probation program. It's built out of the same uh, premises and out of the same principles. It presumes a guilt or a fault of the recipient. It sets up a, a system of surveillance and detections of failing and sanctions for failing to meet certain you know, behavioral obligations. And it is oriented towards uh, pushing out of welfare recipients into the low-wage labor market on the one side and pushing in to the prison system on uh, the penal side. So this leads me to my conclusion. Moral exhortation as a political cul-de-sac. If my diagnosis is correct, then in a sense, this is a, uh, this is a political transformation. This is a broader transformation that entails on the one side the linking of the hyper-ghetto with the prison system and on the other side of workfare with uh, penal uh, policy. And if indeed it is hyper-incarceration and not mass incarceration, 
then the, in a sense, the policy prescription, the shift to, from the positive to the normative take us in a different direction. We are not in this together because that's precisely what defines the phenomenon, is that it doesn't concern all Americans, uh, not even all black Americans. And I'm going to uh, make that point uh, even clearer here because what is the chance that white Americans will identify with black convicts when even the black leadership had turned its back on them? In Deadly Symbiosis, I spend several pages analyzing the shift in policy of the NAACP and the Urban League that have joined into the punitive turn and the us versus them rhetoric and policy uh, advocacy. The black leadership on this question has not uh, failed by insufficient action or inaction or indifference, but rather in its active complicity with the building of the penal state. And let me, since this is a little bit controversial, let me document this very briefly. In the period 1975 to 86, if you look at the writings and the policy advocacy of the NAACP and the Urban League, you see that crime and punishment occupied a central place in their agenda and official rhetoric. They deplored the inordinate rates of violence and imprisonment afflicting blacks. Spokesmen of these organizations saw the plight of their incarcerated counterparts as a reflection of a more general confinement of African Americans in social, in, 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 in social life. They portrayed black inmates in oppressive and inclusive views as brothers, fathers, uncles, neighbors, friends. So there was a we. This was a we problem. And the problem was essentially economic and political in nature and structural, bring more employment, bring more opportunity, open up, close opportunity structures, and so on. And these two organizations used metaphor of enslavement and warfare to describe crime policies in America. Between 86 and 90, there was a dramatic shift in their rhetoric and in their policy uh, positions. By the early 1990s, the NAACP closed down its prison program. Articles in the crisis dealing with rehabilitation and post-prison issue evaporated entirely. And with the diffusion of the scholarly and journalistic myth of the underclass as a new and distinct group raking havoc in the so-called inner city, street crime came to be portrayed in the crisis as an intolerable affront committed by them and no longer as a comprehensible affliction concerning all of us. And then you see a turn and a wholesale retreat of the advocacy of the NAACP and uh, the Urban League. And as black rates of incarceration continued to skyrocket, racial inequality was effaced from public discussion of crime and policy recommendation, shifted to local remedies at the micro level. The NAACP and the Urban League embraced the trope of individual responsibility and exhorted blacks to collaborate actively with the police in crushing what they call, and I'm citing here the crisis, the tyranny of drugs in their community. They switched to supporting zero tolerance policing, endorsed legislation generalizing and increasing prison sentences for minors and recidivists. By the close of the decade, the NAACP had redirected its attention onto the spillover effects of the deployment of a hyperactive and hypertrophic penal state onto the black middle and upper classes with the whole theme of racial profiling, but in the, processes in the process acquiescing to the penalization of social insecurity and its associated disorder in the hyper-ghetto. So I think that instead of, there's a lot of work to be done to make people realize you know, that this is, we are all in this together, starting, I would argue, you know, with the black uh, political leadership. Um, and so in summation, I'll say that the, a more effective focus on strategies would be to try to minimize the harm done by the penal state by stressing not shared values, but shared interests and the pocketbook, the sheer cost, uh, of building this inordinate, inefficient, grotesque, 
penal state that California is investing $8.5 billion. That's more than its whole university uh, budget together. The worsening social problems that it creates down the road by further destabilizing lower class communities, families, and making uh, tens of thousands of young men or older men unemployable for, 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 for years to come. And worsening the social problems that this creates down the road. And I think highlighting that the state's response is always the result of a political choice. You always have a threefold alternative to respond to undesirable conditions and conduct. You can socialize it by acting at the level of the causes of the behavior of the condition. You can medicalize it or you can penalize it. And I would suggest that one of the first things to do is to bring back that option on the table and force people to consider the two options not uh, uh, no longer. I mean, the, to break the sort of uh, uh, reflexive turn to the penal uh, solution. In summation, the rise of a hypertrophic and hyperactive penal state that practices carceral affirmative action is not a moral dilemma, Pache, Murdal, and others, but a political problem. Here I will side with Kenneth Clark, writing 40 years ago in the midst of the great black revolts that shook up America's cities when he called the question of the dark ghetto a question of power and its distribution. I think this remains true a half century later about the monstrous institutional contraption that on the one side links workfare and prison fare and on the other side links the hyperghetto to the prison system. Thank you. To still be able to um, anticipate uh, the um, months and years ahead of study and reflection that I have before me on this problem that I've taken on, having been invited to give these lectures, the uh, scope and uh, profundity of which are more clear to me now after these comments than they had been before them. Um, it's it's uh, absurd for me to try to uh, spontaneously react in some point-by-point -point way to these uh, uh, very rich um, and extremely uh, thoughtful and provocative, critical reactions to my work. I, I just feel very fortunate <laughs> to be able to have these reactions that I can take back with me, as I say, as I look ahead. And it's a long program. It's a long road. Um, so uh, let me say a couple of things here now. Uh, there's a philosophic and there's a social scientific um, uh, thing here going on. And um, I'm very grateful to Tommy Shelby for um, his, his uh, incisive uh, uh, philosophical criticism. He challenges me to a radicalism that I don't know, five years ago, I wouldn't have even been able to conceptualize, let alone contemplate as something that I might, might embrace myself. Uh, I am an economist, after all. Uh, are, are, do I have any colleagues in the room? I say, are you in the department here? Economics, yeah. Yes. On the faculty or a student? I'm a PhD student. Uh -huh. Welcome. <laughs> I could tell you a story. I don't know if we have time for stories. Uh, Stephen Macedo, who directs the uh, Center for Human Values, uh, whatever it's called at Princeton, invited me to give some lectures there, and I came and gave them. And he then asked me if I was uh, interested in having a job at the university, and I said, oh, you know, I'll consider it. And uh, the department shot it down. And Stephen reported back to me, he says, you're too broad. It appears that you're too broad. The argument against me at the department was not that I was not a good economist, 
but that I was not trustworthy, which is to say my disciplinary commitments were unclear. Uh, I started off that lecture at Princeton with a dialogue not unlike the one that I used last night, except rather than Mr. Dr. Rationalist and Dr. Functionalist, <laughs> Dr. Rationalist and Dr. Functionalist, <laughs> I had sociologist and economist, okay? And uh, if I had ever had a shot at getting an appointment in Princeton, I certainly blew it by uttering those words in about 90 seconds at the start of that talk some five or six years ago. Um, I mean, this is a serious matter for me intellectually. I'm 58 years old. I'm not a kid. I'm not in graduate school. Okay. So I have a whole career. You know, a publication in Econometrica actually counts for something in the company that I keep. The issue of who's good enough is never resolved. I'm told that at the University of Chicago, Gary Becker is sweating because he hasn't written anything lately that anybody thinks is worth anything. Okay? And what I'm saying is the, the imperative to perform a certain kind of intellectual performance in the context of a certain closed structure of professional identity is absolutely overwhelming. And what impresses me, because a sociologist presumably could understand this, presumably there could be elaborated a theory just about this, just about identity, about how knowledge gets put together in some sense, and it's not uninteresting to me. But what impresses me is that the stakes to having that thing play out in a particular way for what actually happens in the world are not inconsequential. They are really very important. In other words, how would one, I, I mean, I want to go to school here. I mean, I want to just try to understand what's going on before I prescribe anything. Please, don't anybody ask me, you can ask these guys if you want, don't ask me what we should do. Because I don't see how you could even begin to address that question unless you understand what the nature of the thing is that you're dealing with. If Loic Vacant is even a quarter right in what he's saying across the context of his five points, it's about the state. It's not about crime, it's about managing population. If he's even a quarter right about first order, major league points like that, then I'm running around telling people we need to do a, a federal, federalist style, federalism kind of states as, that's what I said yesterday. Anybody remember that? States as laboratories of democracy. We need a Tommy Thompson welfare reform for prison reform. I spoke those words yesterday. Okay, now that's just absolutely dangerous if it's wrong. I mean, it just plays right into the hands of the thing, of the historical thing that's marching forward. If you don't understand what's actually happening, you ought to shut up about what should be done until you figure it out, or until we figure it out. Economists certainly have something to contribute to the figuring of it out. I have no doubt about that. I'm not entirely clear on what it is. Those little toy models that I had up on there on the board the other day about these individuals embedded in networks, they make sense. They make sense within their own structure. I'm not saying they're unrelated to data or they, can't, they have no explanatory power, but it's like they're down three levels relative to the thing. You know what I mean? I'm sorry, I'm not being entirely clear. I'm not being explicit, but I mean it's like I'm working on a sub-problem of a sub-problem, and I think I've got the whole problem. Right? So, so 
I don't know, Dr. Functionalist has just uh, moved up several notches in my, uh, in my sort of Jekyll and Hyde conflict that I've got going on here. Um, so that's one thing that I think to say. It's not really very analytical. It's just more of an impressionistic thing. It's just more of a reaction to how, this, how these uh, profound comments that uh, my uh, discussants here have made are striking me. So Tommy says, uh, wait a minute. First of all, black neoconservatism is treatable. Come on. <laughs> you medicalized it. <laughs> it's an intellectual problem, right? I mean, the problem is intellectual. And political. It's not medical, right? I mean, I wasn't, I'm not, I wasn't, a, it was not a psychological, you know, thing. I just was confused, right? I'm, you know, or, we could go there, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I mean, people want to remain viable within the various systems that they find themselves embedded in. This recent debate about the NAACP leadership and whether or not it should be more service-oriented or whatever, and then some members of the board say, no, we're a civil rights organization. We're going to do civil rights. And Bruce, the uh, uh, guy who's a corporate guy who wants to be more service and whatnot. Well, this is just a microcosm of what Louis is uh, talking about. And there's not any, no, nobody's evil in there. There's not people who, you know, have sold out or don't care about the black community. But do they have an analysis of what the role of their institution is within the larger structure? No, they do not. So, so this is all very profound. And Tommy says, you know, what about... Basic justice, right, this distinction, this has got to be fundamental. I've got to think about this a whole lot more. Uh, it wouldn't be fair to rewrite my text so that I was no longer immune to the criticism of the discussants. Much better to leave it only, you know, I mean, there's some stuff that's embarrassing and that I've got to change, anticipating the discussion, okay? But much better to leave it in its more undeveloped form and let the discussion hit on and then the next book, or whatever it's going to be, is, can be richer for that. And that's, that's certainly my plan. But yeah, this is a very important point, isn't it? I mean, um, I wouldn't necessarily have to talk about prison reform if I was uh, in a world in which we could talk seriously and anticipate the kind of fundamental structural reform for justice that is required. I mean, that, would, that seems right to me. Um, and um, why am I not more radical? Why am I not calling for more fundamental institutional change? Why don't I talk about the redistribution of wealth and income? Why, why isn't the issue domestic martial plan to the second or third power while you're marching an army across the world on behalf of whatever you think it is? You can find a quarter of a trillion dollars a year to do that, and you can't define it. Why is the agenda of reform defined so narrowly and so circumspectly? You know, um, you know, I'm going to have to think about that. Um, I did find myself saying, uh, in something else, I'm related to the criminal justice thing, talking about education, no child left behind, the achievement gap. I was invited to a conference at Harvard on the achievement gap, and I did find myself saying, my God, we're doing inventories of the parenting practices of African-American households. Now, I'm not saying that there's nothing interesting to say about what goes on in African-American households, but that's how we're treating the problem of the education of American youth? By ticking off how many hours parents are looking over the shoulders of their kids studying? Again, I don't want to be misunderstood. Neither do I assert hours of study are irrelevant, nor do I assert that parents can't be better parents. I'm talking about the analysis and the political implications of the framing of the analysis at that level relative to what might be how it should be understood. We talk about, 
oh, the monies for schools are not equal, when the point here is very well made, and I made it myself in those Harvard remarks, which is that the principle surely ought to be equal, effective educational opportunity, which is to say equal, effective educational opportunity. If it takes five times as much money to generate the same potentiality of human development here in this social location as there in that one, then isn't that what equality of opportunity requires of us? The spending of five times more, if that's what it takes, or the restructuring of the delivery of educational services at a fundamental level such that the end outcome is the attainment of effective educational opportunity at something near an equal level for all students. Wouldn't that be the way to argue that? I certainly agree with that. That would be the way to argue that. Think what that means and think who has a stake in that. I've got a stake in that living in Brookline, Massachusetts where you can walk 100 yards across the road and get to another town where the schools are one third or one quarter as good and I can purchase this little space of opportunity for my children, which is so much um, richer than that which is available to somebody else who can't buy in, right? And if we really took equal educational opportunity seriously, um, I don't know, I'm going to have to get more radical before I think about what that would require. I mean, obviously, that would require sacrifice. That would require serious sacrifice of privilege. That would require the presumption of entitlement being surrendered. You know, so, I mean, I get that. Um, I, I kept thinking about, so, uh, I'm now, this is a little disjointed. Uh, as I said, it's foolish to try to respond in a serious way to these very rich comments on, 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 off the top of my head, but um, I kept thinking as uh, Tommy was talking about uh, the more fundamental questions of justice, justice of the overarching social order relative to the racial justice of, as I've defined it, about uh, Frederick Douglass about Charles Mill's critique of uh, Frederick Douglass's uh, Who's Fourth of July speech in that essay, where um, philosopher Charles Mills argue, uh, argues that uh, Douglass is up there saying the Founding Fathers uh, really intended, uh, they really saw blacks as equal human beings, and you guys have kind of not, you guys in 1854, whatever it was, America have not uh, been true to your creed. And uh, Mills is saying, uh, well, that's wrong. The Founding Fathers never thought these people were human beings. That's just historically wrong. And moreover, uh, Douglas wants them to be true to their creed for the blacks, but not for the Native Americans. Well, that was pragmatism, maybe, or maybe just a shallowness of philosophical reflection on Frederick Douglass's part. You're a part of a settler society that's occupying a continent and dispossessing a people. And your question is, equality within the settler movement, does it dispossess the people? Maybe your analysis isn't profound enough. Easy for me to say, I'm now a free man of African descent sitting in a country where I'm not property and nobody is dragooning me. But I can't help but think that something like that, it's only an analogy I'm drawing here, but it kind of makes me think. I mean, where would the radicalism stop once I get on that slippery slope? 
It doesn't stop at the borders of the United States of America, does it? I'm not even going to continue. You understand what I'm gesturing at there? So, uh, and then there's this uh, methodological question. Like I say, I've got these little, you know, toy models. I've got these individuals making choices. Man, I'm just, I'm just shaken to my core at the thought that, I mean, you know, what I was doing last night was just, you know, you can do it off the top of your head. It's nothing. The real stuff that gets into the journal of political economy takes a lot of time. Okay, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to do. It's hard to prove the theorems. It's hard to think of the ideas. It's hard to get the data. The analysis is technically demanding. You put your whole life into that. Are you putting your whole life into something that doesn't really matter? Think about that. This is not a game. You know, I'm out of school now. It's not gold star time. I'm serious here. This is not play time. You're going to just be uh, spinning wheels on top of little curly cues on top of whatever when the Leviathan is marching on and you don't have a purchase on what's happening? That's very disquieting to me. So my work's cut out for me, okay? And thank you guys. And uh, I'm going to revise the text a little bit so I don't look too idiotic, but uh, <laughs> I won't undercut you. I want to thank you, everyone, uh, Glenn, Tommy, Louis, for uh, what has deepened and greatly enriched what was already a fantastic set of discussions we've been having. But um, I want to trouble Louis on two fronts, one of which is a direct defense of Glenn. Uh, and I'm going to talk about um, a problem of missing processes and mechanisms in favor of typology. and. Um, I'm going to talk in uh, direct critique of the claim of ahistoricism in reference to slavery. And I'm going to put a mechanism right in between those things for you. <laughs> um, okay, slavery. Glenn, you're absolutely right to keep it there. Your use of it is not ahistorical. Uh, why not? Uh, because it is the institution that defined the set of cultural images and orientations that continue to be the linchpin linking each epoch of racial hierarchy that Louis talks about. And it may be a little dimly implicated today, but it is unambiguously implicated today. Uh, sociologists can talk as if there are completely discrete epochs of time. That slavery was different from Jim Crow, which was a new epoch, which was different from the ghetto, which is now different from the carceral state. But these were black people who were brought here as property, who were understood in a certain way, and a set of images and orientations toward whom are a deeply rooted part of American culture and psyche. Okay, that's the mechanism part. Thank you. Um, process and mechanisms. I absolutely buy the argument, Lolique, that the state needs to be at the center of this. Um, but who or what is doing this? And what is it that synchronizes or coordinates these actions across all of these domains? And um, I'm going to wait to hear the answer to that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to respond. 
agree and disagree. Yes, of course, slavery, if you hadn't had slavery, you wouldn't have had Jim Crow if you hadn't had, you know, so each, each peculiar institution is only there because there was one that was there before. And the first originating one was slavery. In fact, it wasn't just slavery. I think it's a mistake to think it was just slavery. It was the peculiar configuration of slavery that the U.S. developed uniquely, almost uniquely in the world in two respects, is that it was racialized slavery when the rest of slavery in the New World was not racialized. And secondly, it was slavery faced with democracy on the same land. And that's, in a sense, that's the real American exceptionalism comes from that. It doesn't come from slavery itself. It comes from the combination of the two. And I completely agree with you that, in a sense, well, the, we can retrace back everything, you know, that, through, you know, per historical permutation and transformations back to that sort of original uh, 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 conflagration, which actually for me would make the revolutionary period, uh, the period of the Revo American Revolution and the early republic, much more pivotal than, than the period of colonization and installation of slavery and so on, because at first slavery is simply a labor extracting device. And, you know, and, and in a sense, the, the negative representations of Africans is placed as a minor facilitating factor in what is largely a, a labor drawing enterprise that you're going to get the labor where you can, you know, forced labor, which was the normal form of labor during those days, from where you get it. And there's no need, in a sense, to have a, a deep abiding belief in the in inequality of racially constituted groups to have slavery in the first place. So in that regard, I, I agree with you. At the same time, I think there's a serious analytical and therefore political danger in, in retracing contemporary forms of inequality back to the original peculiar institutions. When, when that peculiar institution, number one, was overturned, it, it actually created an interregnum where the second peculiar institution was not an historical necessity. Now, and so in a sense, the question of agency and mechanisms and who does what and then comes back is that you had a balance of force then in those days. In fact, you know, as we know well, the period of reconstruction is one in which African-Americans have options that they never had. And the historical trajectory of the US could have been different than what became, you know, what it became. And so I think we must recover that you know, each peculiar institution uh, comes to an end. There's an interregnum where there are other historical possibilities that are not taken, that are not realized, because of the particular balance of power that obtains during those days. And therefore, we need, in a sense, a more strategic analysis of what's the, what's the contending forces that are tugging the American Republic this way or that way. And here, certainly, I completely agree. Well, so let me try to answer this. But, but at the same time, I think that Jim Crow is not slavery. And, I think, and also, in part, we also have a problem that we don't know what Jim Crow is. This is my you know, modest or immodest claim that you know, we go by the sort of historical narrative of Jim Crow, but we don't have a good sociological understanding of what kind of regime it was. I think that it was a regime of racial terrorism and not a regime of racial discrimination or segregation. And I think this is very different because it puts violence at, in a very different place, both the symbolic violence but also you know, material violence in a, very, in a very different place. And so I think that if we can better characterize each particular institution, each particular institution also creates its own image. It reworks the image that it has inherited. So in a sense, the image of blackness that you get in mid-20th century America 
is, of course, has remnants of Sambo built into it, but it is not Sambo, because there has been, in a sense, this new historical repatterning of both the meaning of race and the relations between the groups designated by that category that was affected under Jim Crow. And similarly, I think both historians and sociologists have a problem, I think, distinguishing, again, modestly or immodestly, I say that one of the great problems we have is we have to give the ghetto its due as a full-fledged mode of racial domination. The ghetto is not Jim Crow. It is really a very peculiar urban contraption. Um, it is very distinct from the Jim Crow regime. It, has, you know, it is parallel to it, but I, I give it the dignity of a full-fledged you know, institution. And I think it has produced its own images, its own redefinition of what's possible, not possible, what are the parameters of acceptable and unacceptable interaction. And, and, and likewise, I think that the hyper-ghetto and the prison system also redefine the images uh, that they have inherited. So I think that, in a sense, there is both historical continuity, but I would argue in favor of historical discontinuity so that we give better attention to the peculiarities of each regime of racial domination and its, its peculiar contradictions, the way in which it reworks race. See, my argument is that, in a sense, each peculiar institution produces its own version of race. There's a great coherence and there's great continuity, but at the same time, the race begat by slavery is not the race begat by Jim Crow, is not the race begat by the urban ghetto, and is not the race begat by the hyper-ghetto and the prison system. And, and so, now, to briefly say about the mechanisms and the, yeah. The, I, I have a half chapter in Deadly Symbiosis trying to argue that in a sense, well, it demands a whole full-fledged analysis of the balance of power. Of the, there's a plurality of actors inside and outside the state that are trying to transform the American state. The people trying to transform welfare you know, have their own agenda. It's a racialized agenda. The, the image of blackness as undeserving. You know, when, black, when welfare becomes turned into a black business, if you wish, when the recipients are seen as predominantly you know, welfare mothers are black women, then it transforms the whole politics of welfare. There's, in a sense, there's an autonomous politics of welfare, there's a politics of the prison, there's a politics of the labor market that are autonomous and independent, and they come, they're independent causal series that come to, in a sense, become synchronized. And they become synchronized and articulated and reinforce each other without anybody having planned and having sat down and made a drawing and said, you know, we're going to do this and do that. I mean, so in a sense, it's an invention without an inventor. But that's, you know, in a sense, that's, that's the... That's true of every historical evolution. Okay. Um, I want to go back to um, uh, something that Glenn Lowry said uh, last night, which I think sort of really caught a lot for me. Um, and that is, you said that um, you, know, you are an economist, um, you have a hammer, and the problem, therefore, better be a nail. Uh, and I think that in um, both of these comments, I mean, at least one way to think about it is that um, uh, each comment was sort of saying, the problem isn't a nail, give up your hammer, but come join us anyway. We need, you know, I don't know, sort of labor, you know, unskilled labor, your strong shoulder. And that fundamentally, I mean, I think that your comments in response were saying that there's something wrong with that. Um, and I would just suggest that there is something wrong with that. Uh, and this is just really a question, I think, to you or maybe to, to, to all of you. Um, uh, surely it's, it's exactly the case um, uh, that economics, as it's currently configured as a field, is not addressing these um, uh, kind of big issues uh, seriously. On the other hand, it's a pretty powerful hammer. 
right? I mean, it's a hammer that's demonstrated its capacity um, uh, to have a lot of effect um, in the world and to get a lot of purchase uh, on a lot of questions that we care about, about political questions, about social questions. Um, so I guess part of it is urging you, don't give up that hammer, you know. Uh, uh, but um, clearly the way in which the kind of nails that an economist can hit um, can actually be integrated into you know, answers to these kind of big problems is going to require um, the integration of you know, people who spend their life doing philosophy and people who spend their life doing social analysis with people who spend their life doing um, economic analysis. And surely there's going to be some you know, individual learning and you, know, you become more philosophical and you know, Tommy becomes more economic and so on. But isn't what you're really talking about the invention of a new field? I mean, a new discipline that somehow brings together um, uh, the kinds of capacities that an economist can bring and a, and a uh, philosopher can bring and a sociologist can bring in order to be able to define the issue clearly in order to finally um, uh, roll out uh, a policy initiatives. I mean, isn't that in terms of what we can do as ac academics, uh, we can imagine doing, isn't it really the demand that there, there actually be um, uh, a new, um, at least a, a sort of a conjunction of current uh, uh, academic expertise into something that would be um, both uh, normative um, and uh, a positive uh, a theory and um, uh, the kind of uh, economic theory that you do, um, uh, but also historical, um, take, take, taking history seriously. Um, it doesn't maybe have a name, but is that, is that a reasonable um, uh, a way to imagine things going? Uh, I don't, let me, not before I forget what I want to say, so I want to talk about what happened when I had lunch with economics graduate students yesterday. I want to talk about Jim Heckman, the Nobel uh, Prize winning economist, uh, econometrician at the University of Chicago. And I can't really take on the university and how the disciplines interact and what. I don't know the answer. In other words, I don't know. New field, I don't know. I think there's a problem. I mean, I do think these boundaries uh, and the way the thing works in kind of a sociolo sociology of knowledge sense is a problem. I do think it's a problem. Um, uh, economics is very good at doing, for example, rigorous applied statistical analysis of social data. I mean, I pick up, with, no, with all due respect, and um, Larry Bobo has stepped out of the room, and certainly it wouldn't have been personal to him, but I pick up the American Sociological Review all the time and see bad work in there in the sense of people asserting something that their data is supposed to establish that, in my humble opinion, I don't believe their data actually establishes because they don't have the right model and they haven't thought carefully about how they can draw inferences from their data that are statistically valid. Now, that's not my opinion. That, this is really science. I mean, the statistics of inferring from data what structures are, at, are identified and what inferences can be uh, uh, drawn as a matter of uh, correct inference from the data is something that is, is knowable, and it's hard. So when I uh, chatted with Heckman about Bruce Western's book, and uh, Heckman's at the University of Chicago, and he's an econometrician as hardcore as they come, uh, he's in love with the book because he understands the importance of the problem, but he's upset about a lot of tables that 
seem to show associations that we can't really be sure are actually causal. And he's right to be upset about that with due respect to Bruce Western. Western's doing the best he can and it sometimes is not possible to answer a question to the satisfaction of statistical rigor simply because the data aren't available or whatever it might be. Better if you had longitudinal data following individuals over time than if you have a sequence of censuses of a cross-section of a population, et cetera, et cetera. So, so uh, economics can do that. And I mean, I think, I'm a theorist myself. I'm not an applied economist. And my, my work uh, you know, tended to be more of the sort of uh, building models about things, sort of conceptual laboratories to explore questions and you know, sort of working out the implications of these uh, with mathematics. Um, but uh, that is an intellectually powerful apparatus. It is powerful. Sometimes it's like a cannon down onto something where you, know, you didn't really need a cannon. You know, so, so you're kind of overworking something and you could have gotten by with something much less because the real issues are more historical or political or sociological or whatever it might be. Uh, sometimes I think it can be really quite uh, enlightening and profound. Uh, in, in terms of what it, what it can throw up. And also from a point of view of moral analysis. I mean, you know, John Rawls was very much, uh, it seems to me, indebted to and respectful of a structure, an intellectual structure of kind of decision theory and, and you know, that kind of uh, sort of uh, uh, logical stuff that you might see in uh, Kenneth Arrow's work on uh, social choice or that you might see in that, World War II and post-World War II elaboration of you know, no linear programming and optimization theory and choice under uncertainty and axiomatic treatments of decision theory. These uh, people like Savage and von Neumann come to mind. I mean, these, these are profound intellectual achievements of the 20th century. They're not lightweight stuff. And they're philosophically relevant stuff. So, you know, great. Analytic philosophy, economics, they kind of meet up somewhere out there somewhere. And, and it's important stuff. I wouldn't eschew it, not for a minute. Um, sitting with the students yesterday, uh, they, they picked up on my kind of professional uh, lack of entire fidelity. And they were disquieted by it because they're young neophytes coming into something. They've spent these years. They all want to have jobs. They want to think that their careers are important. And they wanted to be reassured by me. And, uh, you know, I had to say, look, I wouldn't tell you to go off and, and try to be a jack of all trades because it's going to be professional death. It's just probably not a good thing for you to do. Uh, and you probably won't do it very well either. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, some kind of, I don't know what, I don't have a full analysis of this, some kind of reflexivity, some kind of sense of self-criticism, some kind of what problems am I asking, some kind of, please, forego the arrogance. You know, um, uh, I'm going to say something here. I don't know if it's out of school or not. Um, I have tremendous respect for Larry Bobo. He must have had to leave the room. I wish he were here. Uh, his remarks yesterday were so elegant. The things that he said are so um, important. The intellectual energy, the depth. Um, I know for a fact that many of his colleagues in the economics department at Harvard called them laughing behind their hands, Larry Bozo. I'm not obviously going to name any names, okay? But the arrogance is absolutely insufferable. The intel, I'm talking about grown men and women, tenured professors at Harvard, who can't even 
forbear for a minute, I don't understand, I don't see the paradigm, I don't know where it's going, and suspend judgment until they can educate themselves enough to be able to have an intelligent reaction to somebody else's work. Instead, they flip through and they see, oh, I don't see any maximum likelihood estimators asymptotic property of this, and they decide it's, uh, what? I'm not making this up, I'm telling you a fact. Okay? The arrogance is, the intellectual arrogance is, 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 uh, is, uh, the reason that Larry Summers is not president of Harvard University anymore. <laughs> Straight up. So let me, um, I know our speaker has to make an air flight. I do. So I'm going to. Um, I'm just one of the speakers. I'll let you say something briefly, and then I'll take, there are a couple of questions, and how many people, let me just see how many, I've got two. Okay, so I think that'll be fine if you can um, Speak briefly, and then each of the questioners is relatively brief. I think we can do this and get you to your flight. I think my, my response to this query would be that we shouldn't give up the hammer. We need the hammer, we need the screwdriver, we need the saw, we need the wrench, we need all the tools that we can get. There's no reason to, I think, and your response is, is that we should, no one who holds one tool should believe that the tool can do everything. And I think we should learn to be at least you know, sort of minimal, not jacks of all trades, but we should at least learn to see when, you know, when a screwdriver is useful for the problem that we pose. So, and I don't think we need a new science. We already have all the tools. I think we need to have a more uh, comprehensive or a more Catholic understanding of the social sciences as being one science rather than create a new one. Then secondly, I'm struck by the absence, not only of your colleagues from economics, but of political scientists. This is an issue, after all. This is, you know, oh, there's good. But, but you know, I, I scoured the literature in political science, and I was hard-pressed to find a single reference in the, in the leading American political science journals about the penal transformation of the, of the U.S. state. And I think there's a really... Uh, a, a, a I, I published an article in Boston Review, Louis, which you neglected to mention when you were giving your bibliography at the beginning of the difficulty of getting into the American discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of points of personal privilege. And then thirdly, I think that there is a distinctive contribution that, that economics could make to the political debate, which is actually to do a very rigorous ana analysis of the economic drag of the, of the penal state on the US economy. And if you had, I mean, given the dominance of economic discourse, if you had a very visible piece in a top economics journal that said, look, the 2.2 million people, not only the 2.2 million, but the 7 million people behind criminal justice supervision are costing us 2.3 points of GDP growth per year, X billions of dollars of extra income, the profit of US enterprise, blah, blah, blah. then, it, you know, in a sense, that's one way of forcing the issue into the, into the public domain by the appeal to, you know, pecuniary interest of the dominant powers rather than the shared moral values. Okay, so I wanted to make three suggestions to you, uh, Glenn, as you move forward with this, that building on, uh, partly on reactions that I have, but also refracted through the comments that have been, uh, terrific comments that have been made this morning. So the first point is, you've been uh, offered two proposals. One is to talk about broader issues of justice. The other is to talk about issues of power. And my recommendation to you is that you regard that as an untenable dualism. And that part of the reason why the structures of power are so objectionable is because they're unjust. And I don't think you should choose between um, 
in this Catholic spirit just recommended, I don't think you should choose between those and make this an analysis of power or an analysis that has but the two things have, two things go together. It's, it's inappropriate to distinguish them. Second point is on the empirics. My react as I was listening to you the first night, I thought, gee, this drug stuff is coming in and out of the picture. And I asked Tommy at dinner, and he said, you know, uh, it's not that much in the written text. And then I listened to Loic, and he says, whitening of criminality, blackening of prisons. The table he gave was whitening of violent crime, blackening of prisons. So here's a data question, which is the, the drug the drug piece. It's got to be drugs. And then you have an answer to the question asked by Loic, which is how do you write race-neutral laws and get blackening of prison populations? There's an answer to the question. Uh, anyway, but but I think uh, making the drug figuring out the role of the drug piece in your story, I think, is extremely important. Third point, and this is really on this methods issue. So, I listened to you the first night, and I thought this sounds descriptively a lot like Loic, but without the functionalism. Since I don't like functionalism, homology, schmomology, that's great. Then I listened to you last night, and I thought I want to be a functionalist now because race. <laughs> And incarceration dropped down. They were not there last night. Now here's the place where they could come back in, and it goes partly to Tommy's issue about treating race in terms of associational preferences. So you gave this, you know, you had your separating equilibrium last night, and the networks are exogenously given. Okay? In the case of race, the networks are, there are lots of different ways that people can belong to different networks. They can live on different islands, or it could be that they belong to different networks because there is either as a matter of intergroup attitudes and preferences, separation, or as a matter of coercion, there's separation. And my guess is, and this is a model, you know, this is a, this is a, a models question. So what happens to the, what does the equilibrium look like when the players in the B network uh, are separate and know that they're separate in part because they believe that the players in the W network don't want to associate with them. And maybe they don't want to associate, or maybe they do. We don't know. This was partly the issue about what happens in the racially, in, in the data on the schools, the racially segregated schools, where you get the, um, yeah. the, the, uh, the racially segregated, where you don't get the, uh, it's bad to be getting good grades effect versus. So if you add it as a modeling exercise, complicate the model. Don't yeah. use different tools. Complicate the model. What happens if you have, you, you turn it informational? And you include not just an exogenously given difference in you know, who you're associating with, but that is a consequence of one of two things, either intergroup attitudes between members of the two networks or the exercise of coercion to keep the networks uh, separate. And you don't have to go into the uh, intermarriage example that I was foolish enough to uh, speak out loud. So don't drop the models, complicate the model, that's your, you got something to, you have a special contribution 
to make there. It doesn't require giving up the tools. It requires using their full capacity to, yeah. Anyway, those are three recommendations. Thanks, Dutch. David? Yeah, I mean, since these are the Tanner lectures on human values, I, I don't think uh, Loic's uh, animate versions on um, moral exhortation should uh, go entirely unchallenged. Um, and I, I, I would like to hear Tommy and, and Glenn uh, comment on, on that particular claim that we made about the futility of um, appeals to um, a moral exhortation that takes the, the form of an appeal to um, some we. Uh, we are in this all together. If I could just comment briefly and then um, uh, hear what, what uh, Glenn and Tommy have to say about this. It, it does seem to me that it's a mistake to think of moral exhortation that takes the form of an appeal to the we as making a, an appeal to some pre-existing we. Um, as, as if this were um, uh, an appeal to a community that was already constituted in abstraction for, from the moral exhortation itself. Um, I mean, some of the things you talked about under that heading seem to me to rest on a, perhaps a, a somewhat uncharitable interpretation of the, the for example, the, the shift in policy in the Urban League and in the NAACP. I mean, it's, it's not plausible in my view to think that once upon a time, these folks subscribe to an inclusive we that, um, that included uh, uh, criminals and, and the like. And then the we somehow contracted in um, an invidious way. I think it's more plausible to think that these were pragmatic decisions that were made by people in very unpropitious political circumstances, trying desperately to cling to some kind of agenda that would uh, serve the interest of some of the folks they served. So Tommy's argument, which although was pitched at a very high level of abstraction, was, I think, a tacit appeal to an American we who su subscribe at some level to an ideal of free and equal citizenship. So I, I would just like to hear a little more from Glenn and from Tommy about the role that moral exhortation can play a rational moral exhortation um, in addressing these issues because I, I really think that's a fundamental issue. Maybe a nice one to, to end. Yeah, let me kind of briefly. Um, I just forgot to try to respond because I would have wanted to defend myself, so I appreciate the invitation. And I certainly want to hear what Tommy has to say, so I'll be brief. Um, I, you know, I'm not a moral philosopher, so what can I do? I'm just going to tell you how I think about this. So as I said uh, yesterday, Michael Walzer's work has had an influence on me in thinking about this. And of course, the question, if, it's, if there's no we, and if this is the state, and if it's about power, the issue of how one changes, and the question of revolution, I mean, of course, if the state is illegitimate, one should overthrow it. I mean, one should be thinking about how it can be overthrown. I mean, you know, so. Um, and I'm not taking that off the table or putting it on. I'm just saying, OK, so the way I think about this is, um, so Walzer says, uh, you know, you can invent, if you're Kant and you're, you know, a Rawls or somebody, you can invent a, you know, and you, so just the force of the logic, the compelling necessary implication of if you buy these axioms and you're a rational person, you're going to have to agree with me at the end that this is true. You can walk around with these tablets like Moses, you know, in other words, it was just revealed, you know, whatever, and here's the truth about our moral law. 
or you can have a community of persons who have some ongoing uh, understanding of collective purpose and have a narrative account of what their traditions are and who they are and what they're trying to achieve. And you can somehow, within that, sort of reorient people to an understanding of what, uh, you know, the, the, what our legacy, what our purpose, what our sort of is. This is a this is interpretation. This, this is a kind of rewriting the narrative. And so this is much more, it seems to me, oriented toward persuading people, but not so much at the level only of reason, but also at the level more of their sense of identity and of what it is that drives them. So, so in a nation where uh, Christians have real impact on what happens, they have big influence on political parties, they affect our foreign policy, uh, where the median voter isn't in the political science models only making the choices based on some kind of calculation about how if the parties do this or that, the implication of my doing strategically whatever, but it's also expressive. It's acting in a way of affirming some sense of the self and some sense of the collectivity. In a world like that, maybe persuasion is not of the question. And in a world like that, where you have powerful narratives already extant, perhaps one can hitch one's uh, sort of analytical thing to those narratives in a way that would make them more persuasive. Uh, so now, you know, emotive, uh, you know, quoting the Bible and saying, you know, how come we can't we all get along? Why, you know, kumbaya. Of course, that's a waste of time. And I, and I don't want to elevate myself. I'm not probably the person to try to, you know, ultimately implement the thing. But I would not. I would not forsake calling America to higher ground in some sense. I wouldn't rule that out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give that up as a part of my broader uh, framework. But having said that, I still stick by what I said before, which is that if you don't understand what's happening, the whole, you know, you got to, first of all, you just got to understand what's going on. And uh, in that, I give you know, my due respect to Dr. Functionalist. I mean, it's a difficult question. I mean, I, as, as, I guess I'm a, a somewhat reformed Marxist about this question, because I, I used to think that there was a way to, that you could just rely on interest alone, you know, in a, in a kind of classical Marxist way. It's just like, well, you got enough people on your side, they, you know, they have interest, they overlap enough, and and things will just happen, and I, I just don't think that's, that's, that's really true anymore. The reasons are complicated have to do with, you know, this, I think, not only the, the, the nature of you know, capitalism now, but also uh, the nature of class structure within various societies, and people's interests diverge in, in, in complicated ways and converge in complicated ways. So I don't think you can just rely on it. I, I think, I, though I'm not inclined to think that, 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 that simple, you know, just making more arguments would do it. I mean, so, I mean, you know, they, they've got to, got to come together in a certain way, right? I mean, you need enough convergence of interests, because if interests diverge too much, then, then, then the moral pull, it's like it doesn't really have any impact because they, the, the stake in those, in holding on to those privileges can just kind of pull away, pull away. But if there's enough convergence, then I think the more arguments actually can have some impact. And as you, as you rightly point out, I mean, you don't necessarily know who might be willing to come on board, right? And when you don't, so you make the case, and, and some people, you're, you're surprised by, by who, who will come on board and, 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 and who won't. So I, don't, I, I, I think you, 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 you definitely need both. I also think, um, I didn't sort of mention this, but uh, that uh, you know, forms of, of, of political solidarity that uh, draw on both, both on you know, like universal moral claims, but also convergence of interest, but also to rely on 
uh, sentiments of, of, you know, of shared experience and uh, of a history of political struggle toward you, you, you draw on those forms of affiliation that are already there. I mean, and, and there's a way in which the, uh, the black freedom struggle is a long intergenerational historical struggle. There, there are forms of, of, of affiliation that are there that can be drawn on um, uh, to do some good, not to, not to deny that obvious points about division within the black population as well, along lines of class and how interests can, can, again, can, can diverge. So I think you draw on all those resources, the forms of political solidarity that you can, the ones that, that, are, that are already there and have a, a strong history and, are, and, and the ones that, can, that you can form uh, along with uh, various, various moral claims. But I mean, I, I think that in some of the things I was suggesting was, was that you have to be, and when you're thinking about what you're gonna do, you, you know, yes, you gotta know what's going on, you're absolutely right, you gotta know what's going on, but you gotta know, well, what is it you're aiming at? I mean, what is it you want? <laughs> so, so you, do, you gotta think about these questions so you can figure out what, what you're trying to achieve. Uh, sometimes people give an analysis and, they, and it seems like it's obvious what well, we know we want to what we want, or what we want things to look like, but I don't think that's always so clear what we know what it is that we want. So you need, you need that kind of moral reflection in order to, to be clear about what your, what your ultimate ends are. There are social, economic, and cultural conditions for the efficacy of moral appeals. Right. And I think right now, the terrain is not very propitious for moral appeals. Indeed, one of the dimensions that we haven't talked about at all, I mean, in our discussion so far, and to me, perhaps the most extraordinary thing in this whole development of the US penal state is the cultural dimension. There's a very virulent culture of vilification of criminals uh, that is unparalleled in any other society, the democratic society today where there's a true, truly a sort of civic expurgation of, and, and I think it has to do with anti-black animus of the 60s, which becoming delegitimated was, was redirected towards, on the one side, welfare recipients and criminals. And so it has, in a sense, deep roots. I wish Larry was here, because here I would say, you, know, you could trace those roots all the way back to representations of dangerousness and blackness and slaves and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and I think it cre and, and in the higher spheres of, of both the media, but also in political discourse, I quote President Clinton, the first black president, his discourse of vilification of both welfare recipients and criminals, you know, that he was very proud of having campaigns to make sure that even you know, retired, uh, um, retired handicapped uh, felons wouldn't get a single cent you know, of their social redistribution once they have committed a crime. So there's really this extraordinary culture of excommun civic excommunications of felons that intersects very closely with racial representations that make it extra difficult to make moral appeals that would be inclusive of that particular population. All right. I want to um, thank everybody. Thank uh, Lynn, of course, for being patient. Thank the commentators. Thank the audience. I think these were ideal model uh, tenor lectures, and in effect, did what some of the people were questioning, which is bring together, uh, you know, really informed social scientific with more reflection on the social science in ways that I think leave us open to think that there might be some room for hope. So, thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U. 
and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.